Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Greg Oliar, this is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Max Fawcett is here. Max is the lead columnist from Canada's National Observer. He also has a fantastic new podcast called Maxed Out, where he brings on basically people he disagrees with and debates them about topics of the day. Um, you should check that out. Check out his columns. I've been wanting to do an episode about Canada for some time now. Thanks to Amy and Barbara and Barbara for, for pushing me to do it. You know, there's a lot going on up in Canada. I see the headlines. Sometimes I, you know, I recognize the names. I have a, I have an idea of what's going on, but I really wanted to drill down and have a much better understanding of kind of the, you know, the threats that we face we being democratic governments within Canada as well, because there seems to be a lot of fascist sort of energy brewing up there. Remember, we had the trucker convoys. We have this Pierre Polyev guy who is the opposition leader to Justin Trudeau. He scares me a little bit. So I wanted to talk to Max about that. Um, this is a fascinating interview. We don't we cover Canada, obviously, quite a bit and, and all the stuff that's going on there now. But it's more expansive than that. We talk a lot about U.S. politics and, you know, how it relates, how it doesn't relate. We talk about the role of the media. We talk about the breaches of trust and disinformation campaigns and, you know, what to do with an electorate where a significant percentage of the population just isn't getting accurate news. So it was really great to get his thoughts on all this stuff. Well, I took the week off. I had a week of rest. I tried not to interview anybody for the podcast. I did not record any podcasts. I didn't release any podcasts. I didn't do a 5-8 show with LB. I did not write anything uh, on my Substack. I really tried to just give my brain a rest. 
and try to unplug a little bit. So, of course, all hell broke loose. I knew I actually had it in the intro. Hey, Trump is going to get indicted because I'm on vacation. And I think I, I between the time I recorded it and the time the podcast came out, I had to I had to go back and erase that line because, of course, he did get indicted right before I was leaving. He got arraigned while I was gone. That was fun. Um, <laughs> you know, we didn't get the mug shot, but, you know, I'm not going to lie. It was pretty cool to see uh, this criminal uh, under arrest, man. That was nice to see. And I hope this is the beginning of many more arrests. And reading the tea leaves, it certainly does look that way. We also had the Clarence Thomas bombshell investigative reporting by ProPublica. This guy has been going on these vacations with Harlan Crow, this Texas gajillionaire, you know, who inherited all his money and likes to spend all his money making sure that uh, other people don't get the same rights and privileges that he was granted just by dint of being born, right? I hate all these second generation wealthy people who try to fuck over the common man nothing makes me more angry than that so clarence and jenny are like you know they're on the yacht they're getting private jets they're going to secluded resorts they're doing all this like amazing stuff that you would do if you had a lot of money which they don't and none of this is disclosed i don't know if the other justices knew about it or not i don't know if this is a commonplace does john roberts also have a sugar daddy that takes him around everywhere i don't know I think we would like to know because this looks a hell of a lot like graft. And, you know, Thomas is the most reliably conservative, reactionary, retrograde, hidebound dude on the court right now. And I don't think it's an accident that this guy, Harlan Crow, cultivated a friendship with him. I think it looks really fucking fishy. And it's, I, I, I can't really wrap my mind around it, honestly. Like, we only have nine of these people and they're supposed to be beyond this shit and they're clearly not and the only way that we're going to fix this problem is to expand the court because you know there is a limit to how many justices you can go out and cultivate this kind of relationship with it doesn't matter as much if clarence thomas is doing this if there's 81 supreme court justices right it doesn't matter so another thing about harlan crow by the way um he also gave money to kirsten cinema and joe manchin so he's not only funding all the conservative dark money bullshit, he's also funding monkey wrench Democratic candidates. So he's really responsible for fucking up a lot of the works here in the United States. So this guy is trash and he appears to own a Supreme Court justice. So this is really, really bad. And uh, we'll be talking about this and writing about this more in the weeks to come. I wrote about it on Tuesday uh, in a piece called Clarence and Other Crow Holdings. Crow Holdings being the name of his company. What else happened this week is in Tennessee, uh, the Tennessee Three were expelled. That's just fascist bullshit. And I really do think that they went too far. The Republicans did this time, the fascist GOP. I think that the uh, the dog caught the car and now it's in trouble. You know, um, I think that the new movement is going to come out of what happened in Tennessee, which is clearly racist. You know, it just is. And I think that this is uh, hopefully going to be the pendulum swing, an inflection point, you know, where the pendulum is going to start swinging in the other direction. Finally, I think these fascists have had enough encroachment and now is the time to push them back and drive them back underneath the rocks that Trump dragged them out from. And I hope that what happened in Tennessee, combined with all of the horrible, horrible 
anti-abortion, anti-women's rights, anti-women's healthcare shit going on in the red states, the fascist red states, all of this is going to galvanize, especially younger voters. And, you know, it's going to make a big difference in 24. I think Biden's going to win in a, I think it's going to be a rout. Honestly, I don't care who runs. None of these idiots are going to beat him. And I think he's going to, you know, all down ballot stuff is going to be raised up. And maybe by the time of the second term in 25, January 25, when the new Congress and senators sworn in, we're going to have the numbers to really get shit done. Codify voting rights and expand the court are the two most important things that we can do. With that comes the protections for abortion, obviously. So let's get that done. I think it's going to get done. And I am very hopeful about it, despite all the you know, terrible things that have been happening in the country. Guns, too, is another thing. There's another, you know, keeps being more shootings. Max, at one point in the interview, references a shooting. But we recorded this like three weeks ago, so it was a different shooting than the one that's in recent memory. I mean, it's just, it's embarrassing nationally on a global level, all this gun stuff. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but like Russia infiltrated the NRA. They did. Alexander Torshin was in there with Maria Butina influencing NRA people. Now, why, oh, why would Russia want to do that? Because they want us to do shit like this. They cannot beat us militarily. They have to beat us in other ways. One of the other ways they can beat us is arm us to the teeth, stir up rage, and sit back and watch us kill each other with weapons of war. And we have to make this stop. And I hope that all of these things happen, you know, that all of these things combined galvanize the forces of good, the forces of democracy, and lead us to a better, uh, more perfect union where the fascists can, you know, just go fuck off. In the words, in the words of uh, the dearly departed Logan Roy. So, oh man, I talked way too long. Um, this is a really fun interview. I, I had a good time doing it. I learned so much. Max is great. Uh, so without further ado, we will be right back with Max Fawcett. The Taneo Network began with a divinely inspired idea by our founder, Leonard Leo. I spent close to 30 years, if, if not more, helping to build the conservative legal movement. And at some point or another, you know, I just said to myself, well, if this can work for law, why can't it work for lots of other areas of American culture and American life where things are really messed up right now? Entertainment that's really corrupting our youth. Today, we're pleased to announce the rollout of the Taneo Network's maiden entertainment brand, Vatican Records. At Vatican, we have all the genres of music that Gen Z kids like, including pop. Hip-hop. No more abortions for the witches. We the Knights of Malta and we pro-life. Obey you, my wife. No more abortions for the witches. We be open, stay, eat, overturn, row. We send my lead dough. Yo. And country. Oh, I turned nine at an orphanage. I was ward of the state. She couldn't get her done, but mama tried. Mama tried. Mama tried for an abortion. 
So in my childbirth, my mama died. Why can't we build talent pipelines and networks that can positively affect those areas as well? Leonard Leo's Vatican Records, the Tanio Network, the second coming of entertainment. And now, back to the show. Max Fawcett, welcome to Prevail Podcast. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you because here in the United States, you know, we make everybody in the world pay attention to our dumb politics. And because we're self-centered, we don't tend to pay too much attention to the politics of the rest of the world nearly as much. Um, and I know there's a lot of stuff going on in Canada that uh, I want to I want to get like know exactly what's happening. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. Some of them are going to seem very remedial, as you have to understand, we are Americans. Um, but some <laughs> aren't, because I also have a lot of Canadian listeners, and they're like, talk about Canada sometimes. So I, I, I have I have some questions that are not so remedial also, but I'm, I'm eager to get your thoughts on this stuff. Um, now, just to introduce you, you're the lead columnist for the National Observer. You've written for the Globe and Mail, McLean's, The Walrus, CBC. You were the executive editor of Alberta Oil Magazine, Vancouver Magazine, and you have a podcast called Maxed Out. Clever title. I like it. Thank, thank um, you. Thank you. I have a question about that at the end. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that for last, but it is, you know, it's a cool podcast. Um, anybody listening should go uh, check it out. Um, you know, Maxed Out with Max Fawcett. Okay. Uh, so first question, just give a little bit of, a, I, I just gave the little intro, but uh, tell us a little bit about your your sort of career arc. Like, how did you get to be where you are now? Because you're from Vancouver, right? And now, are, where are you still there or are you based somewhere else? So I'm I'm in Calgary. Uh, okay. My, boy, my, my, my route, uh, I think it has about 12 or 13 different stops on it. But I grew up in Vancouver. Uh, and then because like a lot of people, my parents didn't stay together. So then I spent some time in Toronto. I spent my summers in Toronto with my dad. Um, went to grad school in Ottawa. Lived in Edmonton. Uh, and then sort of went back and forth between Vancouver, Toronto, Vancouver, Toronto, Calgary, Edmonton, like it's been this sort of roller coaster, but uh, made my latest return to Calgary right as the pandemic was beginning in February of 2020. And I was kind of like, well, I guess I have to stay here now. And, and uh, very, very happy to be here. I mean, you know, we have a reputation of being sort of like the Texas of, of Canada. Uh, you know, we, we, oil and gas, we, we have a ranching culture, conservative politics. But, you know, I always tell people uh, in our bigger cities here, because they ask, you know, why do you live in Calgary? You're a progressive guy, you must hate it there. It's actually a very progressive city. It's not like Austin level progressive, but it, you know, we elect progressive mayors, we do elect progressive provincial governments from time to time. So, uh, you know, uh, it's a lot more complex than I think sometimes it gets credit for it. A lot like Texas, I suppose. Uh, fewer guns, which, you know, I think we're all very, very happy about, you know, especially in light of another shooting in your country. And, and I know I've had my thoughts about that, but in a way we're like the most American part of Canada. So, uh, you know, I, I, I feel a sort of kinship towards, whenever I go to America, I feel a, a great kinship. And, you know, Americans are, so much friendlier than Canadians. I know we have this reputation for being friendly. We're not. We're polite. There's a big difference. We're polite. Americans are friendly. And, and there's definitely virtues to both. But, uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm happy to I'm happy to be uh, able to give your listeners an update on what's happening up here in in America's hat. <laughs> I guess just you know, just to just to backfill a little bit on on who I am. I started off in politics. I worked on, on Parliament Hill in Ottawa for a little while for the Liberal Party. This was 20 years ago. Realized politics was not for me in the sense of having to do what you're told and having to sort of repeat a message that was created by somebody else. And I started bumping into journalists there and realized, oh, hey, those guys actually have a really fun job. They get to ask questions. They get to have their own opinions. Little did I know I was signing myself up for a trip on the sort of career Titanic as far as, you know, that was the last good age of being involved in the mainstream media. But uh, I sort of started to work my way into, into magazines and newspapers in this country and, and, you know, with all my moving back and forth and eventually have sort of landed as being an opinion columnist, which if you'd asked me when I was 16 years old what I would have wanted to do when I grew up, that probably would have been it. Um, I just took the long way to get there. So it's a great job if you can get it. I'm told. I mean, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, I read a column not for syndicated newspapers, but it's it's. I, I think it's the best form of of sort of processing what needs to happen because it provides context to hard news, which I think is sorely lacking generally in the mainstream media. But that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation. So you mentioned about the the Calgary being I I, I think that the whole business of Calgary and like Edmonton and these sort of blue cities within these very red areas is you find that in a lot of places in the United States, not just Texas. I live in upstate New York and New York is no different even. I mean, we have New York City, we have Buffalo, we have Albany, but once you get beyond the larger cities, it does become pretty red pretty quick. You know, Pennsylvania is the same way with Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and uh, stuff like that. So I think that's just, you know, kind of how things uh, are structured now for for better or for worse. So, um, yep. okay. Yep. First question is about uh, Trudeau. Um, Justin Trudeau, he's been prime minister since 2015, which is a period, you know, that spans now the last er months of the Obama administration, all of the Biden administration, and that four-year period in the middle that we don't like to talk about very much. Um, <laughs> so how is he perceived as a leader there? Because it feels like it's in flux a little bit. Like, is he, how has it changed in the last few years? Sort of, is he more popular, less popular? Are people tired of him? What's your take on him, just in a general sort of way? Yeah, I think people are getting tired of him a little bit. You know, it, he's been in power now for going on eight years, which, you know, in the United States, you have term limits. We certainly we don't up here. But I think eight years is sort of the lifespan of of a politician in this day and age, especially when they're so overexposed in the media. Uh, you know, they're, they're everywhere all the time on Twitter, uh, you know, on Facebook. And, and Trudeau has captured this country's attention for better and for worse like nobody since his father who was who was our prime minister for uh 14 years i believe although there was a little period in there where he wasn't but anyways you know he was our he was our john f kennedy and, and sort of properly i think viewed as the founder of modern canada uh, and so you have this sort of you know uh almost sort of political royalty aspect it's certainly why trudeau got got where he was and terms of becoming a leader of the Liberal Party. It helped him get elected. People really liked his warmth, his his positive energy. But, you know, he's, he's been in, in power through a pandemic, which has, I think, been difficult for any democratically elected leader, including the bad one down that you had. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's it really wears on them because they've had to tell people to do things I think a lot of people don't want to do. You know, he's he's made some promises he hasn't lived up to. He has disappointed people as as you sort of tend to when you're in power. And and 
there is sort of a, a Trudeau industrial complex among our conservatives, very similar to the way Obama was kind of weaponized by the Tea Party and, and Fox News, where people just love to hate him. It, it yeah. is their identity. Hating Trudeau is a defining aspect of a lot of people's identity in this country. And I, I think it is just starting to wear on him and his brand. Now, can he win another election? Uh, the saving grace for him all along. You know, he had, it's funny. He's a he's a you know a trust fund kid. He's a, he's inherited this great political fortune, and he's always been matched up against weak leaders. Uh, you know, he he caught the last prime minister when he was on his way out. The replacement for that leader was a very uninspiring sort of human personification of mayonnaise, a guy named Andrew Shear, just like the milkiest milk toast guy you can imagine. And then there's another guy, Aaron O'Toole, who we've already basically forgotten about up here. And now we have Pierre Polyev, who is like this very aggressive pipsqueak, um, you know, uh, <laughs> like very just he's just like, you know, a dog who's having its hair rubbed the wrong way all the time. It's that's his effect on a lot of people. He's very nasal. He's very um, kind of obnoxious. And. Uh, you know, full credit, like he's a very skilled politician. He has a very strong message. But I'm, I think if Trudeau is able to pull off another win, it will be because Pierre Polyev is just so innately unlikable. And, you know, uh, that would be quite the feat. No one's ever done that uh, in more than 100 years in Canada, win four elections in a row. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see, I suppose. So that was I was going to ask about him, too, because it feels like this guy, Polyev, um, suddenly is everywhere from, from the U.S. point of view. You know, we hear names. Candace Bergen was a name that was trending on Twitter. And every time I thought it was like the, you know, uh, <laughs> Murphy Brown. Yeah, Murphy Brown. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and was disappointed to learn that it was not or actually happy to learn that Murphy Brown actress wasn't saying this crazy shit. Um, yeah. And uh, now this guy seems to be what they've they've gone back to the lab and they've come up with you know he's young um all this kind of stuff but it, it feels like uh just like we knew from the pilot of breaking bad that walter white and his brother-in-law hank were just gonna eventually collide it feels like trump is gonna you know he's gonna face off against him at some point so he looks like a young fascist to me is he how afraid of him should we be and why don't you canadians elect really old leaders like we do here Okay, those are good questions. I, 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 the funny thing about Polyev is that I think if you gave him truth serum, he's way more progressive than his followers would like to understand. You know, like he is, he is in his own beliefs a pro-choice guy. Um, you know, he, he, his wife um, is a, I think, believe she's from Venezuela. You know, like you certainly can't accuse him of being racist because he's not. He does. He's very pro-immigration. Um, you know, I. I see liberals here trying to stick him with the Trump label, and and I just don't think it's a good fit because he kind of defies those easy characterizations. I mean, he's adopted. His birth father is a gay man. You know, like there's just a lot going on there that is not, um, you know, it's not that sort of cookie cutter uh, Trump light thing. What he is, is, is first of all quite unlikable personally, which. Uh, you know, I think it, that certainly anyone who's spent time around him in parliament seems to, to not have a, a, a great well of love for him, uh, you know, and being likable is an important part of getting elected. Um, and he's a pretty conservative guy outside of the social uh, stuff. So in terms of the size of government, in terms of, uh, you know, the role of markets, all that stuff, he's a pretty, you know, he's a, he's a Reagan-ish kind of guy. 
which I'm not sure is a great fit for the moment. Um, and he, the thing that troubles me the most is he's very willing to stretch the truth. He, you know, his his communication on social media, uh, even in in you know, sort of uh, when he's doing speeches and things like that. He's willing to say things that are pretty clearly not true, and he knows it. Uh, he flirts with the sort of World Economic Forum nonsense, you know, that sort of conspiracy theory about elites. He's very, very happy to pick up the sort of Trumpist language about the media being being the enemy and and things like that. And so, you know, I, I, he's not a fascist. He's, you know, on social issues, he's probably more progressive than a lot of Democrats in the United States. But he he is willing to corrode democratic institutions in this country in a way that I think is very dangerous. Um, so we'll see, um, you know, that the Trudeau government right now keeps stepping on its own feet in, in ways big and small. Uh, it really is showing its age uh, in, in terms of some of the mistakes it's making. But Trudeau, his, you know, one of his sort of defining characteristics as a politician is he's an amazing campaigner and he campaigns best off his back foot. So he the last two elections have have had this pattern where the election will start, something will come out, he'll start trailing in the polls, it'll look like he's done for, and then he surges back and and by election day he you know salvages government. Um, and that could easily happen again. He might be one of those politicians that really needs to feel like he's backed into a corner before he brings his A. As to why we don't elect older, you know, eight, you know, eight-year-olds <laughs> for, yeah. for office. Um, well, I mean. I, I mean, I guess I've turned the question around. Why, why don't Americans elect younger people yeah, as, yeah. as their president? You know, it's, I was going to say it's, it's refreshing sort of staggering to, see. to us up here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that is, that is the, you know, the truth of, you know, of, of our politics, as much as you may dislike the, the options, they're all fairly young. They're all generationally sort of, you know, of the moment. And, and I think there's a lot to say for that. On the other hand, you know, a lot of people looked at Joe Biden when he got elected and thought, oh, this this old geezer's not going to do anything. And I, I mean, I think he's probably turned out to be one of the most progressive presidents in the last 60 years. Um, yeah, absolutely. He's done yeah. a lot, done a lot of things that I think people didn't think he could do, maybe by virtue of being older um, and not caring or, or just not really being interested in the long game. So, you know, who's to say? But yeah, we do like our prime minister's young here. That's for yeah. sure. It's not a bad thing. I, I look, I'm like, these, they're both younger than me. Jesus, I, what have I been doing with my life? Um, so <laughs> what what is the mechanism by which there'd be another election there? And how would that work? Like, is it, how, how would Trudeau be voted out? Is there a time frame that's, it's not set in stone, right? Does it have to be called or something like that? Yeah, so our our system is is obviously a little different than yours, and you have those lovely fixed elections, and and we have the British system. So, what we have in Canada right now is is a is a minority government. So the Trudeau Liberals have uh, a plurality of seats; they have the most seats, but they don't have more than fifty percent. And okay. so they have to they have to partner with another uh, party in the in the House of Commons to form a government. That is the, the the left wing New Democrats. They're sort of the most progressive, most left wing party in our system, and they have an agreement. Uh, it's not a coalition government like you see in places like Germany. It's just an agreement. You know, they have some terms written down, and the NDP has agreed to support them in exchange for key policy issues, so dental care for kids, um, pharmacare, a bunch of things like that, really good things. And as long as that agreement is in place, there will be no election. But the NDP could theoretically yank the, the court on that at any moment. There's there's no binding legal aspect of that that says they can't just call it, you know, they can't just say, okay, we're done with this deal. We don't like it anymore. So 
there's always the threat of an election in a minority situation. And, and honestly, one of the most annoying hobbies that, that journalists in Canada have is speculating about an election, right? So it seems like every few weeks you'll see, you'll see an article or a column from someone saying, oh, I think there's an election coming. Oh, you know, spring election, oh, fall election. And uh, I mean, honestly, I can't see one before next year at the earliest. And, you know, theoretically this government could, could run the full four years to 2025. Um, because the new Democrats don't have any money uh, and you need money to win elections. And, and it's different in our country. We don't have the sort of campaign finance, how shall I put it, loopholes that, that, that you do in the States. Mon- oh, money, money, a- is very, money, is, money is very hard to raise here. Let's put it that way. That's a euphemistic term for what it is here, but yes. Uh- <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, mean I, could say shit, I could say shit show, but you know, uh, I, was, I was being polite, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, so so I don't think anyone really knows when the next election will be, except that it will be soon-ish. Certainly, the Liberals don't have any incentive to call an election themselves. We're going through the same sort of you know lousy economic period that that certainly Americans are, and it just governments don't tend to want to have elections in the middle of recessions. So uh, you know, I think I think 2024 is probably a safe bet. So. But you said before it runs through 25. Is that when the the parliamentary elections are? Is that how that works? So the, the 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 parliamentary elections would be whenever the government falls and and we have an election. It all happens at once. We don't well, even elect okay. a, you know, the the prime minister is is not technically elected as the prime minister. He's just another member of parliament, but his party and, and the the House of Commons lifts him up. Right, they lift him up. And, so, okay, I wasn't yeah. sure if there was a term limit or something that you know. No term limit. So it it's I mean it's four years from the last election is generally regarded as. The next election, governments can run it a little longer if they want to. I think I think you can run it up to five years if you really want to push it, but uh, you pay a price for that. Uh, there's sort of a convention in Canada that it should be every four years, right? Um, okay. And the Harper government, which was the one before him, brought forward a fixed election law, which is not really a law because the government could just change the law. So, anyways, it, Canadian election dates are very confusing. You have to be a political science major, but you know the. If there is not a, a sort of tumultuous happening, you can expect the next election to be in September of 2025. That would be the scheduled date. Okay, that's good. Thank you. That I I, I know that's probably remedial, but you know, looking at it, we're no, like, no, no. oh no, this guy's coming for Trudeau. When do we have to start worrying about this? And the answer is that uh, we'll be in, in Biden's second term by then. We'll be good. We'll be fine. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So I have I have one overarching question and then a bunch of questions that follow it. But I should probably because I always forget. Uh, let, let's take a quick break now. Uh, we'll be right back with Max Fawcett. OK, we're back with Max Fawcett. I want to talk about fascism a little bit because it's on our it's on my mind and it's on the mind of people listening to the show. And frankly, it should be on the mind of more people living in this country. Uh, we're very concerned about, you know, fascist overthrow. I don't know if you heard about this, but like two years and change ago, there was a coup attempt in Washington where people <laughs> uh, storm the Capitol and try to install a president for life kind of thing and overthrow the will of the people. Um, so my, my sense fascism wise is that uh because Canada has nice things like socialized medicine and what, what you said before, like dental care for children and these nice kind of things that we wish we had, there's probably less of a uh, 
a desire on the part of the populace in, at large to, to to go in that direction. But um, what's your take on that? What's the what's the who, what, where, why, how on on fascism in Canada? Is it something you worry about? I mean, I think Canadians are constitutionally a little more moderate than Americans. You know, we 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 did not sort of become a country on on the back of a revolution. We became a country sort of because Britain decided they wanted us to be a country. Um, you know, so we don't ha we don't sort of celebrate that kind of revolutionary spirit in quite the same way as Americans do, for better and for worse. Although I think increasingly for worse lately. But there is still a percentage of the population, and and it is by and large the conservative percentage um, that is willing to flirt with really dangerous ideas. Uh, that is willing to flirt with things like, well, democracy is not that great, you know, and uh, well, what's really important is that we is that we do things the, you know, the correct way. And uh, maybe the will of the people isn't isn't as important. I, I don't think that has developed as much as certainly as it has in the states where, you know, like you said, you almost had a, a thing on January 6th and, and you have the Republican Party that I think everyone thought would kind of back away from that instead has completely whitewashed it and in some respects is going to embrace it. So you know, there's still a pretty clear hard line in this country around that sort of stuff. But, you know, we had our trucker protests last, you know, last February, uh, January, where, you know, we had a bunch of truckers come and, and sit in downtown Ottawa and, and honk their horns really loudly and say a bunch of crazy things about, you know, the World Economic Forum and Trudeau and, and COVID and mandates and all that stuff. And, I, you know, I don't want to say that it got close to a January 6th kind of thing, but I think it got closer than a lot of people realize. Um, and that, you know, that does worry me that, that, and I think this is probably a problem in all Western democracies, that we're, we're increasingly distant from the time when people fought, and un fought for and understood the value of freedom and, and the right to be represented democratically. And we take it for granted. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, we we take the institutions that, you know, certainly my grandparents fought for, uh, like they're always going to be there. And I th think we're sort of seeing that it's not necessarily the case. And, and I promise you, Canadians are very, very nervous about what's happening down below us. Like we we see the sort of, you know, the January 6th stuff and the Trump stuff. And we're just like, uh, can we maybe be somewhere else when this all goes down or, or have it not go down? Because, you know, it's funny, like Canada has benefited disproportionately from our location, uh, you know, for as long as my parents and their parents have been alive. You know, being next to America has been the greatest blessing for our country. Um, you know, we have been, you know, we always piss and moan about America and how you boss us around. But honestly, so much of our prosperity is a function of being close to America, being close to its culture, its values, its norms, all that stuff. But we may be at a point where that starts to be a less valuable proposition. Um, you know, certainly we have lots of fresh water. We have lots of things that America might want to, to borrow or take from us. And, and we're not really in a position to stop it. So yeah, we watch those things with, with a little bit of trepidation and, and concern that we can't do anything about it. Cause we really can't, you know, our, our military uh, does great work in the sort of small pockets where it does that work. You know, they're great at training people up in Ukraine and, and really uh, doing stuff like that. But boy, if, if you if y'all wanted to take what we have, there there is not a darn thing we could do to stop you. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, I know people say that here. We think, um, shit, if the fascists take over, what's going to happen? And, and a lot of people say, oh, we'll just go to Canada. And I'm like, 
dude, if the fascists take over, I got news for you. Canada, Canada's not going to be safe. We have to be far, far away. And, uh, you know, hopefully it will not come to that. I feel, you know, I talk about fascism a lot on the show and I write about it a lot and, you know, talk to people who study it a lot. And, uh, you know, the, the the hope is that as with there, there's enough people in this country who do value individuality and not being told what to do that and democratic values, even if they don't fully understand them to uh, push back on those ideas. And I think I'm feeling a sense like the, in the in the midterm elections, the real Trumpy people, the people that he endorsed, the people that he went to bat for all lost pretty badly. And uh, Murdoch jumped off him and tried to support Ron DeSantis. And now DeSantis is definitely a fascist, but he's sort of swooning now. The The first wave of interviews and him trying to leave Florida have been sort of a disaster. So maybe yeah. we're just going to get kind of more of a milquetoast, uh, sacrificial lamb sort of opponent, like sort of like Trudeau has, has enjoyed. And, uh, you know, historically speaking, popular incumbent presidents in this country very seldom lose elections. So I know these are yeah. weird times, but I'm hopeful that... Uh, you know, we're, we're going to stick to it in that way. Now, well, one of the, if, if I can just jump in, one of the one of the things I've sort of noted from and, and I'm encouraged to see in the states right now among progressives, and I think progressives up here are much slower in learning this lesson, but but I think they may eventually get it is reclaiming the value of the word freedom. I, you know, I think in a lot of respects, progressives kind of just gave up on that. And they're like, yeah, it's not we're not interested in freedom. We're interested in progress and you know, equality and justice and kind of abandoned that idea to conservatives. And, and they have, you know, certainly with Trump and, and that whole universe have really kind of weaponized and, and perfected uh, that, that appeal. And it's nice to see progressives starting to reclaim that and say, no, no, like we're the ones who are fighting for freedom, not those guys. Those guys are the authoritarians. They want to curtail your freedom. We want to expand your freedom to be who you are, to love who you want to love, all that stuff. And I, that I think is is kind of crucial to beating them back is is reclaiming some of the space that I think they were allowed to occupy in in the discourse. And like I said, we're we're not there in Canada yet. Uh, our progressives are still a little too far up their own, you know, what's about um, you know a lot of the policies and and still in a place of kind of trying to tell people, well, it's what's best for you, you know, not realizing that people hate being told what's best for them. But, you know, I, I think I think Biden is is a really valuable example of how you can combine progressive values with with sort of blue collar economics and, and really kind of speak to people in a way that's like, no, no, we're going to get you a good job. And we're going to make sure that, you know, you can marry who you want to marry. Those two things don't have to be separate. Right. Yeah. No, that and that's an excellent point about freedom and the words the Republican Party in this country and the right wingers in general are really good at doing that. They sort of they figure out in advance what the language is going to be and they rush and occupy that space. Um, we're seeing it now. I mean, even this it's such a hackneyed thing. But, you know, this term woke, which they've they've sort of taken over, um, you know, doesn't mean what it used to mean. Now it's sort of a pejorative when it, it really doesn't mean a pejorative so we, we we on the on the left have been very bad historically at that at the language of it which is ironic because all the good writers are on our side <laughs> but um people that actually know what words mean maybe that maybe we should instead of freedom we should say liberty but we'll spell it like the french way liberté and then uh you know that should piss off the the, the right wing like nothing else having a little french in there 
think that'll be that's true. That would that would trigger them instantly. That would trigger <laughs> them instantly. Um, so you mentioned the the trucker convoy, which was pretty clearly uh, an op paid for and financed by people here and elsewhere. The, the I you know I sort of saw that in real time. Um, around that time, I had Mark Bory came on the show and he he sort of explained what was happening. I he lives in Ottawa, so he was right there, and yeah. you know, people were like urinating and the, it, people's sidewalks, and it was just disgusting. Just mostly, they were just assholes. There was no other word for it. They they didn't really have any reason to be there they kept shifting what they were saying moving the goalposts and ultimately it failed but they were it, you know it lasted for a lot longer than it probably should have so are those disillusioned quote-unquote truckers like still around what's your take on that i mean is that kind of thing still a threat or do you know how to deal with it yeah it's still a threat i mean they were the funny thing is they were that was not their first jamboree um they they did a uh a uh uh, sort of a roll on, it was called the United We Roll, and it was a trucker convoy under the uh, two previous conservative leaders, Andrew Scheer, um, and it was all about oil and gas. The mayonnaise, the mayonnaise guy, yeah, yeah. who's, by the way, an American, uh, and not not a credit to your uh, to your country in any way, but um, <laughs> yeah, he, 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 he was, he was, I'm trying to think of who the correct American analog would be for him, maybe like um, a little bit Marco Rubio, but but Marco's more successful. Um, yeah, I don't know. He's maybe he's okay. one of a kind. But anyways, he was leading sort of or encouraging this convoy of oil and gas people coming from Alberta mostly, but you know across the country to Ottawa to basically complain that Ottawa didn't love oil and gas enough. Um, now this was when global oil prices had crashed. You know, newsflash: Justin Trudeau does not control global oil prices, but people didn't want to hear that. They wanted to blame someone, and and he was a great target. So that was sort of their first run at things. And a lot of the people who were involved in that showed up again as leaders of, of the one last year. So it's really, you know, they, they will bolt themselves onto any sort of grievance-based movement if it means they can shout at, at Justin Trudeau and say mean things about him. And, and I don't think that's going to go away until he goes away. Um, yeah. Honestly, I, I think that is the thing that is going to endure as long as he's in public life. Um, and I think the real question is what happens after that? You know, does it does it kind of just disappear? Does it bleed into the, you know, does it does it get satisfied by a conservative government and those people have nothing to complain about? I'm I'm sort of of the view that they have become addicted to complaining, that that is a part of their identity now. You know, it's it's something oh, yes. that I think a lot of people discovered a lot of people discovered over COVID. You know, that was their community. Their community was getting on Facebook and trading conspiracy theories or getting mad about the World Economic Forum or, or Justin Trudeau or whoever. And they're not going to give that up. Um, that That is a part of their life now. And and so, you know, I I almost think that it's, you know, it's almost like you have to deprogram uh, people who have kind of gotten hooked on that stuff. And I honestly don't really know how you do that at a, a population level. Um, we have these technologies that kind of are designed to feed that addiction, that addiction to rage, that addiction to conspiracies, that addiction to, you know, finding community in weird places. And, and it's kind of like, we have to just learn to live with that as a society, that there's, there's a percentage of the population that believes wacky things and we can't really fix that. And, you know, maybe the way you deal with that is just going forward, having better public education, doing more in schools. Although, you know, of course, conservatives and Republicans hate that. You know, they don't want to see people developed as critical thinkers because then they they will not sort of walk the, the same road with them. But 
you know, it just does feel like there's a certain percentage of the population that is kind of beyond being reached by any sort of positive, constructive message right now. Yeah. If you come up with a with a way to solve that problem, please do let us know because, you know, here in the States, it's, <laughs> I think it's much worse. I mean, it, it, it's a significant percentage of the population. It's completely grievance-based. The grievances aren't even real, and it's utterly self-defeating. I mean, it is, you know, you mentioned deprogramming, and it operates like a cult. Uh, as we're recording this, it's it's uh, March 28th over the weekend. Trump was at Waco, which, you know, that's that's a huge uh, cult place where uh, David Koresh and the Branch uh, Davidians were, and that whole thing went down 30 years ago. Um, so it seems pretty calculated that they're leaning into uh, cultishness. Um, the last point about the trucker convoy is they tried to do it in Washington, D.C., and uh, I, it was one of the things I got very right on Twitter. I'm like, have they been to D.C.? They're, they are not going to be able to find anything. Like Washington, D.C. was designed <laughs> specifically to get lost in so that foreign yeah. like foreign troops would get lost and not be able to just march right to the. So and that's what happened. They got lost and they gave up um, <laughs> because GPS didn't work. I, I mean, don't know. <laughs> the saving grace for us is we don't have Fox News. Um, you know, we don't have a, a television network that that's kind of blasts this mind poison into people's heads 24-7. They tried. They tried to create what was called Sun TV, uh, which was supposed to be the, you know, conservative news network. Um, but it it just failed because there isn't a market for that. There, or there maybe there wasn't a market for that back then. It was certainly run by people who were perhaps not as good at executing as, as the Murdochs are. Uh, and, th you know, th I think that is one of the reasons why we're a little in a little better shape on that front. But, you know, the, in some respects, the Internet is the great equalizer on that because young people don't sit in front of TVs anymore. They 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 sit on their phones and they can get that that content, uh, regardless of which which, you know, TV networks are set up here. So uh, I, I I do have a you know a concern that that is. That is going to be a bigger and bigger problem going forward in this country, especially as you know, as you mentioned, the the trucker convoy. You know, a lot of that money came from America. There there is a there is a group of people in the United States who would be very happy to see Canada turn into uh, you know uh, a political satellite of the United States. Would be very happy to see our politics be the same as yours. And you know, I think we need to be a little more mindful of of what that is what that looks like and how we can kind of stop it because we're we're a little naive in this country um on, on that front you know there's there was there's been a scandal going on right now around chinese involvement um interference in our elections and yeah absolutely they're trying to uh mess with outcomes here uh but they're not alone uh it's it's not just the chinese it's the russians it's the americans and you know we are a we are a very attractive battleground for a lot of that stuff yeah. Um, so if there's a Canadian equivalent to MAGA, it seems like it's the UCP, which is the United Conservative Party of Alberta. And Al Alberta, I mean, it just seems to be the epicenter of all this this sort of weirdness, this right wing craziness from there, um, which, as you mentioned, it's also where, you know, the, the oil and gas industry is from. And it's wow, it's like the two things are related. So um, give us a little overview on the recent right-wing politics of, of Alberta and that party and what you think of it. Sure. Um, yeah, I think, I think that is fair. I mean, they're, you know, one of their cabinet ministers 
it was famously photographed at a MAGA rally wearing a MAGA hat. So, um, you know, they're not shy about it. Um, they are the creation of two, they're the merger of two different conservative parties in Alberta. They're, they're sort of one that had governed for many, many, many years, almost four decades, the, oh, more than four decades, sorry, the progressive conservatives um, who were sort of more of a, a catch-all of anyone who wanted to be near power. Uh, you know, a lot of their policies were actually quite unconservative. But then there was this party that was formed called the Wild Rose, which which very much sort of in the vein of sort of Tea Partyism, uh, very you know rural, small government, libertarian, very culture warry. You know, anything that you know get the get the LGBTQ stuff out of schools, all that nonsense. And they were merged uh, after the NDP, which is our progressive party here almost accidentally formed government in 2015, uh, this sort of shock conservatives here who had been accustomed to always being in charge. And so they got together, they built this United Conservative Party and, and put one of the more talented former federal conservatives in charge, a guy named Jason Kenney. He won the election in 2019, big win, knocked the NDP out of power, and then COVID hit. And he couldn't, he couldn't hack, he couldn't manage the the two factions in the party you know there were the sort of business conservatives the the people who like understood science and were pragmatic and were like yeah of course we have to like wear masks and get vaccinated because that's what you do in a pandemic and then there was the sort of tea party maga rural base that were like don't tell me what to do don't force me to wear a mask don't tell me i you know i can't open my business and eventually they pushed him out they pushed him out uh in september last september uh, so there was a leadership race, and the new leader is a former talk radio host, a former provincial politician here named Danielle Smith, who is, I guess you could say, our Sarah Palin. Okay. Very Palin-esque uh, in her takes. You know, big was a big fan of ivermectin. Uh, you know, believed in in hydroxychloroquine for the pandemic. You know, it's one of those people who who will say very provocative things and then says, "Well, I'm just asking questions. I'm just asking questions, right?" No, we know that. You know, she was, <laughs> she was, you know, she was sort of you know, not very thinly veiled supportive of Russia uh, early on in the conflict there. Like, well, the Ukrainians are going to have to settle and give up a bunch of territory, which pissed off a lot of people in Alberta because there's a lot of Ukrainian immigrants here, I think, per capita more than anywhere in North America. She's reined that in over the last few months as she's been premier. She's She's been very, you know, sort of careful in her statements, careful in her views. But, you know, she would be, if she is elected in our provincial election here in May, probably the most conservative premier we've ever had. And that's saying something in a province that has had almost always had conservative premiers. You know, what, what she will do while she's in, if she gets elected for, for a four-year term, hard to say. I think private privatized healthcare or certainly aspects of privatized healthcare will be on the table. Silliness around oil and gas, you know, you've seen that in Texas with Governor Abbott around, you know, some of the ESG stuff where they're making these silly rules about how you know, the state pension fl plan can't invest in ESG funds, which very weird for the freedom guys to be telling, uh, <laughs> you know, their pension managers what they can and can't do. But I'm sure that nonsense will come here, you know, and there's this sort of bubbling sort of Alberta separatist movement under the, under the, under the water that's, you know, there's this probably five to 10% of the population that thinks we should be separate or we should join the United States. So, you know, it's never a dull moment. It, uh, in Alberta politics, as, as I like to explain to, or as I like to say to friends of mine in other parts of the country, when they ask, I, they say, look, you always bet on chaos in Alberta politics and you'll never go broke. So, <laughs> you know, whatever's, whatever is the most chaotic outcome, it's probably going to be what'll happen. Okay. So now I, you mentioned the, uh, 
the separatist movement, the Sovereignty Act. So basically, Albexit is is what we could call it, right? Is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, is there any chance that Canada breaks up, or is that just never going to happen? That's never going to happen. I mean, it's such it is a small part of the uh, of the public here that actually supports that, and the the mechanism for separating is just too complicated. You know, you would need a majority of the public voting in support in a referendum, and then you'd have to negotiate with Canada. And I, I just I just don't think it would would ever happen here. It's it, people are too sensible, they're too pragmatic. There's too many people from other parts of the country who've moved here. I mean, you know, Alberta is a magnet for people from other parts of the country uh, who come here for economic opportunity, for honestly more affordable housing. Uh, the housing situation in Canada is is absolutely crazy. You know, houses in Toronto and Vancouver, our two biggest cities, are ludicrously expensive. And so you got a lot of young people moving here just because they want to be able to raise their families in a house. So none of those people are going to go for this nonsense. They don't they don't want to break up from Canada. They love Canada. You know, so it's sort of it's a lot of, you know, much ado about nothing. Uh, but it's it's a current that conservative politicians have been very good at harnessing for their, you know, for their donations, for their volunteers, for their campaign energy, because that five to 10 percent that believes we should be separate. Uh, they're pretty they're pretty motivated um they seem to have a lot of time on their hands and and <laughs> so uh you know i they are they are a potent force even though they will never actually uh be able to deliver anything close to separation no that you have a strange location for a separate country too to be essentially landlocked within the borders of another country i like lesotho yeah. or swaziland or something it's that we've tried to explain that to them many many times that like being a landlocked oil and gas economy in a decarbonizing world is like the worst possible hand you could have um <laughs> there's also the there's also the fact of of indigenous communities in, in alberta that have treaties with the crown which is the you know the the british crown the canadian crown they're not going to go along for the ride and so you're independent and all of a sudden you have most of your landmass uh, returned to the indigenous communities who signed those agreements, those treaties with the crown. What do you have left? Oh, not very much. So it's, it's, you know, it's sort of this ludicrous pipe dream by people who have never actually bothered to pick up our constitution or, or take a class in political science, but you know, they have the freedom to believe whatever they want. So. Yeah. Well, it's one way that's the hate Trudeau thing, I suppose, extends to to wanting to be removed by him. So um, speaking of Canada breaking up, I haven't heard much about the Quebecois separatists demanding secession lately. Is that still a thing or is that we're now done with that or was it ever? I think we're done with it. OK, it, oh, it was it was very nearly a thing. I mean, I I remember I was in grade 10 at the time, but this was our, we've had two referendums in this country, the 1980 and the 1995 one. And in 1995, it came within an eyelash of happening. Uh, you know, it was like the final vote was 49.4 to 50.6. Uh, like it was, it was, it was unbelievably close. And I don't think anyone really knew what was going to happen after that, if it had gone the other way. So that was the moment where if it was going to happen, it would have happened. But Quebec now, you know, it is a, a modern, vibrant economy that, that people don't want any part of going down that road again, because when they went down that road the first time, it cost them 20 years of being an economic backwater because all the all the big businesses moved to Toronto, you know, the banks, the insurance companies, because they didn't want any part of that craziness. You know, separatism is very bad for business. Um, and I think Quebecers 
understand now that they don't need to do that to protect their culture and and preserve their place in the world. And you know, I, I'm hopeful that that stuff is kind of in the backseat or the the rearview mirror of history and kind of move forward from here. Are you sure about that? Because you know, I, I think that um, leaving the European Union has been wonderful for England. I think it's doing really well now. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I. I you know, Brexit frustrates me in so many ways, not least because it's trapped, you know, a bunch of my friends who are young people in Britain, you know, they've, they've lost their ability to go and work in Europe the way they used to be able to. But it is such an amazingly effective lesson about the dangers of sort of stupid populism and, and kind of hollow nationalism. And anytime any other country tries to go down the road, you can just kind of put Brexit on the table and be like, would you like that? Would you like to have your grocery store with no vegetables because, you know, people couldn't plan ahead? I, you know, I think it at least has value there. I just sort of bums me out that, that people who voted against it uh, have to pay the price on it. Yeah, no, it's really a, it's really a shit show. It's just, you know, it's, it's disinformation. It's a Russian op. I, I see, I see Brexit and, oh, yeah. and Trump as the same op in two different countries, but uh, you know, we, we both got hit hard, but they got hit harder. So um, now, speaking yep. of this, now we're living in an age now, and you've mentioned it or alluded to it a little bit before, disinformation, misinformation, utter bullshit being disseminated by reputable media outlets. So uh, right now, this kind of thing, sort of media trust is in the news or in the spotlight in Canada because of the situation involving, is it Hong Dong? Am I saying the name right? Hong Dong, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and his lawsuit against Global News. So um, if you don't mind, just give the listeners a quick overview of what happened to him and then talk a little bit about what's at stake there. Sure. Um, so he, you know, there was there was a leak a little while back, I want to say a month ago or so, um, that the Chinese government had been involved in supporting candidates in our 2021 and 2019 elections to try to tip the balance in favor of the liberals because they didn't like the conservatives and their tough on China policy. And and. You know, so the question was, what did our prime minister know? When did he know it? You know, that everything seems to suggest, no, that he didn't know anything. And, and they certainly weren't like in on it. But whoever's leaking this stuff from inside our equivalent of the CIA uh, or FBI, you know, wasn't happy with that. So they've kept leaking things. And, and Han Dong was one of the, the candidates that apparently the Chinese were backing. And there was a leak recently that suggested that that he had gone to the Chinese consulate and told them not to release these two Canadians who are being held prisoner by China until after the election, because that would help uh, that would help the liberals. And it doesn't really make sense. None of that makes sense for any number of political reasons. But, you know, this was reported by Global. Um, it was not reported by the Globe and Mail, which is sort of our New York Times. They they looked at the story and said, yeah, we're not touching this one. I guess, you know, we don't feel comfortable running with it. And Mr. Dong, you know, who without knowing all the facts and and we don't know all the facts you know i think it's it is certainly understandable from his perspective to to feel wrong to feel like he has been sort of made guilty before uh having any facts put forward to that effect um so he's suing global global's been very quiet about that which seems to me to be a bit of a tell but you know we'll see where this all nets out but you know in terms of trust in the media uh you know it's it's really tricky because you have you know, you have a lot of progressives. You have people like me. You have people like Chantal Hebert, who is, you know, one of our most esteemed uh, journalists in this country, kind of standing up and going, "Maybe we should slow down here, folks. Like, maybe we should not throw this guy into the into the you know into prison before we get the full details, because 
anonymous security sources have in the past been full of shit. Um, you know, and we certainly you saw that in the United States with with the invasion of Iraq. Um, you know, we saw that here with a, a gentleman who was tortured by Americans and believed to be a, a terrorist by our own security forces. Turned out he was just an engineer, uh, not a terrorist at all. And, you know, he won a big settlement from the government. You know, I don't think that it comes close to compensating him for the, for what he went through. But, you know, the fact is you don't trust anonymous security sources on blind faith. And it feels like we're walking down that road a little bit right now. And it's just, it's a very murky, complex situation. And, and of course, guess who benefits most from this, regardless of how this plays out? China and Russia. Because what they are able to do with this is they're able to sow mistrust, uncertainty uh, in institutions like the media and government. And that's, what, that's always what they wanted, right? They've always wanted yeah. Cana Canadians and Americans to not trust institutions. And... So, you know, this is, this is all very bad, um, however it turns out, because, you know, if it turns out that Mr. Dong uh, did not do the things he's accused of doing, there's a bunch of people who are going to have less trust in the media. If it turns out that he did do them, there's a bunch of people who are going to have less trust in our elected officials and some of the media. So it's, it's really a lose-lose. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I, that concerns me. It's why I've, call, I've called in my columns a couple of times for the federal government to, to just hold a public inquiry into as much of this as they can. They have not, they have been very unwilling to do that so far for reasons that don't make a ton of sense to me, but um, you know, old governments make dumb mistakes and I think this might be one of them, but we have a, we have a tr trust problem, you know, certainly not quite to the extent maybe that you have in the States, but, but I think we have it everywhere in the Western world um, where people are less trusting of the media, less trusting of, institutions and and you know i understand part of where that's coming from in the sense that we don't want to blindly trust the media but it is absolutely to the benefit of authoritarian regimes that we trust the media less than we should yeah. that makes any sense no no well well said um and you've written a couple you know some columns about this which i encourage people to read if they want to uh learn more about the the intricacies yeah no it is it's a it's it is a lose-lose i was thinking of that as you said it because um you know the erosion of trust is so important and it's it's honestly like i've been writing about trump for seven six and a half seven years now i can't even believe like i you know i'm a novelist by trade like i'm not i just started doing this because i perceived a threat and now i trying to vet everybody and the you know you you read a story in the times and okay i can't just i have to see who wrote the story and if i trust that person and sometimes i know the person's bad but i think what they're saying is probably act like i shouldn't have to do that it should just be this you know it, it will be properly vetted and, and and stuff like that and uh i don't know so i hopefully this this uh you know resolves itself in some way that's minimizes the damage to uh to all involved you know i mean part of the problem here is is that this trust is not reversible you know it, yeah. it is not a thing is not a thing that you can rebuild easily and i think again authoritarian regimes understand that that if they can chip away at this it's gone forever and you have bad faith actors on social media who who will take advantage of it they they will weaponize the lack of trust they will take it you know it's a way to make money it's an opportunity and you know, I, 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 again, I think sort of in the same way that there's a certain percentage of the population that's kind of lost to us on conspiracies, there's a certain percentage of the population that we can't train or educate to understand the complex media environment they're in. It's just too much. Yeah. And we, we need to fo need to focus on young people. Like, honest to God, the, 
a full year of high school should just be media literacy. And, and that's not, you know, making them woke or progressive or anything like that. It's just teaching them how to understand what a fact is, how to understand what a source is, how to understand what bias is, and so that they can go out into the world and have all this information coming at them from various sources and be able to process it. Uh, you know, we are we are in a situation unlike any other in human history in terms of the amount of information we have to digest every day, and we're not prepared for it. We're not, you know, we're not evolved for it. We're not wired for it, and we're kind of just doing the best we can. Um, but you know, in terms of preparing future generations for the operations that you know authoritarian regimes are going to run on us, corporations, uh, even you know, totally benign sources are going to try to run on us. We need to give people better tools. And, and right now it sort of feels like we're trying to fight fire with a stick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my kids are both in high school and they did, they did spend significant time in their English classes learning about media literacy and that kind of thing, which surprised me in a, in a, in a positive way. Um, now ha have they read more than a handful of novels in, in three and a half years? Probably not, <laughs> but you know, whatever. I think it's better to they, they, let's, let's push back on the fascism and they can read novels later. Uh, exactly. You know, I don't think the Dickensian, but uh, Bleak House doesn't really, you know, apply necessarily. Okay, so I just have a few more questions because I know we're we're coming up on time. Uh, you have a podcast which we mentioned at the top called Maxed Out, and you have guests on that you disagree with, um, which I think is great. But here in the states. Uh, that format would not work because we don't like to platform Nazis, and that's who disagrees with us. So, what's that experience been like for you doing the podcast with? Uh... I mean, it's been great. Uh, I mean, uh, to be you know, I'll be clear. I definitely am not interested in talking to Nazis either. I I draw I the line at like, yeah. you know, you know, conservatives, libertarian. I love talking to libertarians because they're. It's just I'm so fascinated by their worldview. It's like it's like having a conversation with a cat. You know, like do you really think the world works that way? But I, I think that we need to remember that there is more common ground between us than than I think we are led to believe. You know, I think social media in particular really kind of draws out the differences. It makes us all like 20% more of a prick than we really are. Um, and, and and it just it just it profits from us disagreeing with each other. And I think we need to remember that especially when we get together in the real world which is something we do less and less certainly we did during the pandemic less and less people tend to be pretty agreeable you know you have a lot in common even the person who you disagree you know vigorously on principle matters of principle there's a lot you agree on um there's a lot of things that you have in common and i think you know if we're going to get back to a politics that is a little better and a little more constructive we have to start rebuilding that sort of space where we can have we can have conversations and we can agree to disagree. You know, there's a lot of forces that don't want that to happen. Um, but this is sort of my little attempt at at tr trying to, you know, push back on it and also trying to rewire my own brain. You know, I found myself getting too disagreeable. I found myself getting too kind of aggressive in my disagreements with people and and one of the really nice things I found about this podcast is just looking at someone over Zoom softens me and makes me a little more willing to hear them out. You know, okay, I disagree with you on tax policy or I disagree with you on climate policy, but, you know, let's let's hear your argument. And in a bunch of the episodes, it's turned out that like, oh, okay, we actually do agree on a few things. That's interesting. So, um, you know, I'm enjoying it. I think 
my guests are enjoying it and you know my dozens of listeners are probably enjoying it and hopefully we can <laughs> we can add to that right we're gonna you're gonna have at least two dozen by the end of this i, I assure you no uh Excellent. yeah Excellent. no i i, I applaud you because i i do like i don't have the i honestly i don't have the stomach for it and i do think what you said is is i do think what you said first of all is true that most people do have common ground i think there's 15 20 percent of people are lost but most people agree on basic fundamental things I think, you know, more than than most people realize. And, uh, you know, good on you for for going out there and trying to to, to find the common ground, because I, I do think it's important. So um, I think that's great. Thank you. Um, sure. Uh, I, I have two more quick questions and then I will release you. Uh, first one is, uh, OK, so uh, <laughs> President Biden paid a visit to Canada recently. Uh, what did you take away from that visit? Um, I took away that he is a very, very skilled politician, more than I think we appreciate sometimes. You know, he, I, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it definitely went viral here. He he had this moment where he was talking about how his government and the Trudeau government are, are you know, one of the ones that have a gender balanced cabinet and everyone stood up, but the conservatives didn't stand up. And, and he had this little joke where he's like, you know, guys, I'd stand up even if you don't want to. Um, and it, <laughs> that was great. It sort of, it kicked off this, like, honestly, like it's still going with this debate about, about, the conservative parties, I think, problematic attitude towards um, gender diversity, you know, like they, there's this instinct among a lot of conservatives to go, well, you know, if you have a 50% balanced cabinet, aren't you undermining the principle of merit? And it's like, boy, you're really telling on yourself there if you think that women are inherently less meritorious than men. So that was a gift to, to Trudeau. The, you know, the other gift was you know, there's a lot of Canadians who are nervous about the Inflation Reduction Act and, and what it's going to mean for our economy. Or, you know, are you guys going to steal all of our investment? Is all the clean energy capital going to flow down there? And, you know, Biden certainly and, and, and his, his ambassador made it clear, no, 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 you guys are in the tent. You know, you're part of this. We're rebuilding our supply chains to be sort of a North American supply chain to push back against China. And I think a lot of people were very heartened to hear that. So, you know, it it's a reminder that when America is a friend, it is the best friend in the world. You know, uh, you cannot have a better buddy than than the United States when you're Canada. It's also a reminder of the contrast between that experience and what it was like under Trump. You know, uh, oh, where we really kind of felt we really kind of felt like we were fighting for our lives every day. Uh, you know, on the free trade stuff, on on any number of different files, and and. You know, not that we can get involved in your elections, but boy, I think that, you know, if you took a poll of Canada, I think it would be probably 75-25 in favor of Biden winning another term. Uh, we don't want to go down that road again uh, any more than, than you know, certainly you and, and other Democrats do. So, um, you know, it was, it was an interesting reminder. I think, you know, I think it's it's been tempting in the past to sort of think that Canada can decouple from the United States that, you know, oh, we'll just, we'll build relationships with Europe and with China and we don't need the Americans. and for better or worse, we do need the Americans. And we're both stronger when we're kind of pushing in the same direction. Good. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that Joe did well there. And I'm glad that that, that is your uh, your response to it, because, um, yeah, you know, I, I agree. I think that the, the more in concert and uh, we are, the better for everybody. You know, it's just it's just kind of a good thing. And we're going to we're going to work our hardest to make sure that you don't have to worry about the return of uh, I, I think Trumpy is not going to even if he runs, I'm not really not too concerned about him winning um and he's the front runner it's gonna be a shit it might be a trouncing but as long as biden yeah. is alive and healthy we're in good you know so say say your prayers light a candle if you're a church going you know person for for his health but uh i think we're in, we're in pretty good shape i he i wasn't 
sure what he would be like. I knew he would be better than Trump, obviously. I figured it would be one of these caretaker kind of things where he just put good people, you know, in charge of the various positions. But he's been he's been fantastic, much better than I than I thought. Um, OK, what one last question. Uh, what is the best musical artist Canada has ever produced and why is it Rush? <laughs> oh boy yeah i mean i i'm the wrong person to ask, as any any of my friends will attest i'm the wrong person to ask this question of because my musical taste is still stuck in the 80s um but but rush i mean i remember you know one of my favorite celebrity sightings was i was in toronto and i saw getty lee getting out of his mercedes benz and going into a very cool restaurant and i was like oh that's that that was that was the guy so uh yeah i mean i i know i know among my drummer sort of curious friends or my 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 drummer fan friends uh you know neil pert occupies uh god level status so you know we do pretty well in terms of of the musical uh acts that we contribute to the to the culture you know i the brian adams is of the world and you know i apologize alberta is responsible for nickelback which uh you know we want we're really sorry about that but they you know they're quite popular and we we balance that out by Katie Lang and and you know we've contributed them so or contributed her so you know it, it all evens out but uh, yeah Rush Rushes I think is a pretty good answer um, you know Tragically Hip is a popular answer up here as well you can, can kind of go both ways on that one yeah I, I'm not even sold on Rush I just wanted to, was try, I like them I was trying to be funny Katie I forgot Katie Lang was Canadian Katie Lang might be it that might be the answer to the question um okay so where can we find you you're on twitter still until elon musk destroys it which he might do by the time this airs it's just your <laughs> it's just your name right it's just just my name it's just at max Fawcett. yet yeah, until till elon brings it crashing down which could be any day now like you say that i'll be there and then when he wrecks it uh you know i'll pop up wherever wherever everyone else is you know wherever the party moves to we don't seem to have picked a location for that yet unfortunately and then you can find my work at the national observer and you can listen to my podcast maxed out which uh you know i'd love to have more american listeners i'd love to have more canadian listeners and hopefully we can uh we can keep building this thing maxed out is available everywhere you know you wherever podcasts remember these wherever books are sold wherever you get your podcast <laughs> Uh, go seek it out. Um, you know, it, it, I think it is very essential for me, even I'm talking about myself too, to pay more attention to what's going on north of the border. Um, so this has been terrific. Thank you so much. Uh, I, cause I, I really, you know, I, I'm sure the listeners also got a lot out of it, but me personally, I wanted to know all these things and you have answered all my questions and I feel much smarter now. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I feel like it's my duty as a Canadian to say I'm happy to help. But, uh, you know, in in all in all seriousness, you know, like I said at the beginning, I, Americans are so much friendlier than Canadians. And so it was it was a delight to, to spend an hour with an American. And, and you absolutely lived up to that uh, to that that reputation. You know, the the friendliness comes through and I appreciate it. Great. Thanks again. I appreciate it. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fawcett. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we 
shall prevail. MSW.